Right. Before we get started this morning, I want to do something that uh, we have done in the past, uh, not that often, but a couple things. Um, when people go through struggles, we always want to make sure that we're lifting them up in prayer, and we certainly do that by giving out our uh, emails as we hear of those things. And by the way, just a little commercial, if we don't have your email address, please give that to us so we can make sure we stay in touch with you throughout the week. But um, there's a family here who's been struggling with some things. And by the way, Bob Young's uh, sister-in-law went home to be with the Lord suddenly uh, two weeks ago today. And so, Bob, our hearts are with you and Nancy. And um, then even another family member extended uh, same thing while they were there for the service, uh, just in all the various circumstances there. And so we don't want to put anybody on the spot, but we always want to pray for people as as we hear of these things. And so Danara and Esther have been going through some real challenges here with Esther. And um, the Lord is leading them through some medical uh, discernment. And so we want to just pray for Esther. And uh, Danara, do you want to come forward here? Is that all right? I want to put you on the spot. Scott, where is Scott? Why don't you come on up, Scott? And and uh, grab the mic right there, and, and let's just lift up Esther. And uh, we'll keep you informed as the days go by. She's precious. She looks so cute this morning. I think that shirt would look good on me. But you can wear it today. How about that? Is that okay? What? I'm just uh, She's like, what? I'm not doing that. I was teasing you, sweetheart. I said, I like your shirt. So we just want to lift her up. So Pastor Scott's going to come and, and just pray. If you all would just join us in prayer over this, we'd really appreciate that. Father God, we come to you this morning, Lord. Thankful that you're a God who uses the prayers of his people, Lord, Father, to accomplish your will and your purpose. Mm-hmm. Father, I pray for Esther, Lord. Lord, I commit her to your hands, Father. I pray that you would just um, bless her and heal her, Lord. Father, that you would, even in this moment, perform a miracle and, and just remove everything, all the symptoms and all the root, Lord, Father God. Lord, I pray for Dianara, Lord, that you would give her strength, Lord, that you would give her wisdom and discernment, that you would give her the peace that passes understanding that only your children can know and understand. Father, I'm thankful for her as she shared how she's shared that, that she is trusting and, and putting her faith in you, Father. And that's what we all are doing in this moment, Lord, to, to put our faith in you, Father God, and declare that we submit ourselves to you, we submit Esther to you, Lord, to do your will, Lord. And um, just pray that, that, uh, that in all of this that we'll glorify you, that Dianara will glorify you, that, that this will be something that, that draws... Um, their whole family closer to you and even to you, Lord, Father God. We don't know. We don't know everything, certainly, but you do. And Lord, I uh, again, I'm just thankful for the faith that 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 we're seeing to come and and before the church, Lord, and to, and to um, be able to to lift her up, Father God. And Lord, um, I thank you. I thank you for this family, and um, again, just pray for your healing hand um, and your and your. And comfort, Lord, from the Holy Spirit, strength, guidance, wisdom, peace, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 All right. Thank you, Pastor Scott. And yes, let's uh, please lift up uh, the young family. This is, uh, again, Bob's um, sister-in-law, Carolyn. And Carolyn and Bruce have served missions work for... How many years now, Bob? They've been in North Carolina. How many years have they been serving? Forty-some years, yeah. So praise the Lord. Isn't it wonderful to have the hope of eternal life, to know that she's safe with the Lord? Praise the Lord for that. And by the way, I appreciate you your willingness to let us adjust our schedule here. I never want us to be so routine that we can't just be a church. And by that I mean being able to hear of things and and not get so caught up in our routine. I don't ever want us to do that, that we get so structured that we forget the importance of what we're doing. And uh, junior church kids are heading out that uh, we can take times like this and pray. So if you have a need and you really want the body collectively to pray over that need, please let us know. Okay? We want to be the church. Uh, chairs are nice. New paint's nice. 
a building's nice with air conditioning and heat, but you know we are the church, and uh, we want to present ourselves before the Lord in in a family way before Him. So hopefully you understand that. All right. Okay. Well, speaking of which, let's go ahead and pray uh, for the service now, this part of the service at least, and and get our minds focused on the text, Lord. As we were just mentioning here, we do lift up these precious families that have been so special to us. And I'm sure there are many in the room today that are struggling for whatever reason and, and certainly ones that we know about that we've just not made public. Lord, uh, we commit our family members to you, knowing that they fully belong to you, but how it is your heart's desire that we lift them up. And, and so we, we do just that. And now we would ask that you'd open our minds and we would celebrate your word together as we hear the instruction from our Lord on the mountain again as he was teaching so many years ago that we might glean from that as we kind of find ourselves uh, standing at the sidelines, so to speak, with a listening ear overhearing all of this. But thank you, Father, that this word is just as real and just as truthful for us and as much for us as it was for those early disciples. So again, Lord, open our minds that we may hear you today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so you know well we're in our Foundational Truths Sermon on the Mount, our Foundational Truths from the Sermon, if you will. So find your place in Matthew chapter 5, and Lord willing, we're going to cover more than a verse today. How about that? That'll be something exciting, won't it? New and different. Don't clap. (laughs) Clap. Was that you, Chuck? make you sit in the back of the room from now on. <laughs> All right, so let's just get our thoughts focused here as I like to try to do in my, my own mind just to formulate some entry into this. If we think about leadership, uh, each of us have had some exposure to leadership over the years. And if you've studied leadership at all, you know that there are certain qualities that make good leaders. I, I saw an article this week from back in December, December 9, from a, a magazine called Task Q. Never heard of it before. Some of you may know what it is. I don't want to show my ignorance here, but T-A-S-K-Q-U-E. And it talks about the top 15 leadership qualities that make good leaders. Let me just give you the, what those are real quickly. I thought this was interesting. Honesty and integrity. And you say, why should that be interesting? Well, you wouldn't expect that to be the number one on the list, but it was on their list. Confidence. The ability to inspire others, commitment and passion, good communicator, decision-making capabilities, accountability, delegation and empowerment, creativity and innovation, empathy, resilience, emotional intelligence, humility, transparency, and vision and purpose. And I got to the end of that and I thought, wow, I mean, that's quite an exhaustive list, at least it seems like to me. But nonetheless... Because of leadership, there have been some people in the world who have been some really great leaders, and we've heard about them over the years. Maybe you've been privileged to be under some of those people. Some of those people are what people will often say, what real leaders will say, people who write on the subject will say, most leaders are born. In other words, they just come into the world with the ability to lead and have these characteristics and these qualities. And then there are people, though, who have learned leadership. And so if you find yourself not necessarily feeling like a leader, it doesn't mean that you can't be a leader. It just means that it may be you have to work on it a little bit harder, work on some subjects. And there are no perfect ones for sure. And then there's what, at least in my mind, I think of people who are thrust kind of into leadership. They didn't plan on it. It's just kind of a result of the way their lives have been or maybe their occupation. I thought about that specifically this week, and you may kind of wonder where I'm going with this, but when uh, Kobe Bryant and his daughter passed away in that tragic accident among those seven others that lost their lives, you know, our hearts just feel for that and and the the terrible situation that it all was, just fully all the way around. But I thought about Kobe Bryant, and if you don't know who he was, he was the professional basketball player. The numbers of people that... Uh, had something to say about it and the feelings that people had. And for all intents and purposes, uh, don't know anything about him really. I should have studied more of his life. But because he was a public figure on a basketball floor, people just identified with him and uh, found it to be very, very personally uh, affecting of themselves uh, because of his life. And so there are people who just 
end up taking the spotlight because of what they do in this world. Then there are those who have thought they were leaders and tried to lead in various ways, which led people like John Maxwell, if you've ever studied any of his leadership, he was a pastor for some years and then has done much about uh, leading and teaching on leadership for big companies and churches and everything. He wrote a book back in 2011 called The Five Levels of Leadership, and he said this, and I think he's quoting an old Chinese proverb, honestly. He says, if you think you're leading but no one is following, then you're only taking a walk. And I thought, yeah, that's pretty accurate. Right? So there are a lot of people who think they're out in front, and they look behind them, and there's nobody following. So it becomes a good stimulating conversation to have with yourself, I guess. But regardless of the qualities of the leader and the definitions of leadership, and it just goes on and on and on, there's one thing that leaders all have in common, and that is they influence. Leadership, according even to John Maxwell, is leadership is influence. It is absolutely, without question, influence. Now, as much as I'm talking about leadership, I want to transition that thinking about leaders into just us as people because I want us to think about it as God's people. As God's people, not only are leaders influential, but we are also influential. We are to be influential in our lives. Let me read you something from a man named Elihu Barit. Now, you may not recognize that name, but he was a man who actually died back in 1879. He was an American diplomat, a philanthropist, and um, he wrote this. No human being can come into this world without increasing or diminishing the sum total of human happiness, not only of the present, but of every subsequent age of humanity. No one can detach himself from this connection. There's no sequestered spot in the universe no dark place along the disk of non-existence to which he can retreat from his relations with others, where he can withdraw the influence of his existence upon the moral destiny of the world. Everywhere his presence or absence will be felt. Everywhere he will have companions who will be better or worse because of him. It is an odd saying and one of the fearful and fathomless statements of import that we are forming characters for eternity. Forming characters? question mark, whose, our own or others? And he says both. And in that, mom, uh, in that moment lies the peril and responsibility of our existence. Who is sufficient for such a thought? Thousands of my fellow beings will yearly enter eternity with characters differing from those they would have carried thither had I never lived. The sunlight of that world will reveal my finger marks in their primary formations and in their successive strata of thought and life. Now, what in the world was he just saying? He was saying very simply what George Bailey learned in It's a Wonderful Life. If you've ever watched the movie, you know at the end of it, George finds out he really did have a very significant impact on the people in Bedford Falls. The point is, we in our own individual lives are purposefully placed by God to have an influence in people around us. We can't distance ourselves enough to somehow not have an influence on others. And so we need to start this morning understanding what Jesus is going to say by remembering and realizing that I, as a Christian, am an influencer. So as we think about what Jesus has been teaching us so far from the mountainside, when we concluded last time, we learned from him that the happiest people in the entire world are not those who are the self-sufficient. It's not those folks. But those people who see their need, they're beggars, they come to Christ because they know of such need. They're not the self-confident. They have no ability to be confident in their own abilities. They're not positive about themselves. They mourn over their sinfulness. They're not self-serving, but self-sacrificing. They're gentle, merciful, kind, humble, yearning for righteousness. They want to follow God at every turn. That's the heart of the true believer. And we've spent weeks studying that. That's the characteristics, or those are the characteristics of a true Christian. And Jesus has built now the beginnings of his sermon, because this goes on for a couple chapters. He's built the sermon 
foundation by helping us to first of all understand you've got to know who are the people that belong to me. And that's been foundational. Now with those beatitudes and all of that in his foundation, Jesus is going to now teach the people who live this way. He's going to go from the heart here for a minute. He's going to say the people who live this way are the greatest, and you should bracket that, the greatest influencers in the world. God's people are the greatest influencers in the world. You should write that down. And you can make that personal. I am one of the greatest influencers in the world. And however you want to say that, not because of your abilities, but because of who you are not in your own abilities, but because of who you are in Christ. Very, very important for us to understand that. So today's message is Christians are the greatest influencers in the world. So let's stand and read chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, and then we'll break this down. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Now, there are two main thoughts in those, parag- in those verses. The number one, number one is that Jesus is going to identify two main characteristics of who the influences are, what the characteristics are of the influencers who belong to him. And they are pretty obvious here. The first one is the salt. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Secondly, he says, you are the light of the world. So foundationally, we understand our hearts. And now Jesus says, here's what my influencers look like. So let's just talk about each one of these and why they have significance. Now, you'll understand this. Salt was a very precious commodity in Jesus' day. In fact, I learned some interesting things that I didn't know about. It was the Romans who believed that there was nothing more valuable in society than salt outside of the sun itself. And I'm talking about the physical sun. It was so valuable to them and such a precious commodity that soldiers were paid in salt. And that's where the phrase, you're not worth your salt, came from. Because that's how they made an income, as partly at least, at least maybe in a bonus system or something. I'm not sure. So secondly, we know from history that salt was a mark of friendship. It was so special. In other words, to share salt with somebody meant that there was a commitment that was being made in the looking after each other's welfare. So it would be like the passing on of some symbol of love to one another when you literally ate salt together. And then salt was a binding tie and a covenant. And you remember that covenants were legal contracts, if you will, or some way for parties to make an agreement together. And two people would eat salt together as a way to bind the covenant and to tie the covenant. Uh, Today we use various symbols. Rings become the binding tie physically of marriage. Uh, Contracts become the same kind of thing. Well, in the biblical days, people ate salt together. In fact, even God made a covenant of salt with David in 2 Chronicles chapter 13 and verse 5. And we won't go to that, but I just want you to hear this. And even God said in Leviticus 2.13 that the sacrificial grain offerings were to be offered with salt. And all of that was a sign of permanence and loyalty on the part of the one who was offering it. And so in Jesus' day, you can imagine as they hear Jesus say, you are the salt of the earth, then it would have a, an immediate connection with them because it was such an important commodity in their day and one not to be taken lightly at all. And salt has several attributes, really, that make it valuable and useful. And people would know this. Number one, salt purifies. And these are things that we already know about. But just think with me for just a second. It purifies. Some, in fact, have said that Jesus used salt here in this illustration as a picture of purity because of its being white. 
So Jesus is saying you should be white in your holiness. You should be representatives of purity like salt is in the way that it looks. Clean vessels, if you will, for the work of the Lord. And all of that's certainly true. Secondly, salt gives flavor, and we know this. I, for one, am a saltaholic. Um, I just love salt, and I just had some blood work done, so my sodium level's fine. I just want you to know that. The doctor was extremely happy about that. Um, but salt gives flavor, and so people have said over the years, well, what Jesus is really meaning here is that we are to be the ones who are providing flavor for the world. We're to be the happy ones, and that's basically what he's been teaching right, through the Beatitudes. We're to be the full of energy and the full of life, uh, the people who have the excitement about life. We're not to be down, downcast. So this is kind of an argument against uh, having a bad attitude. Uh, I've changed this into my own phrase here, is that we're never to rain on anybody else's parade. Nobody really likes that. Because the idea is we give the world its saltiness. We give the world flavor, and that's some of the, tr- uh, some of the idea behind it. And again, all that's true. Uh, you and I certainly are a unique flavor in the world. In fact, the scriptures tell us, the King James Version anyway, says we are the particular or peculiar people. Right? So there is something very unique about us. Um, but when the world idea, the idea is that when the world tastes of us, figuratively speaking, they get some sense of substance. There's a uniqueness about us. And they should have no trouble in determining who we are by what we say and how we live, how we, who we belong to, what we stand for, what we represent, who we represent. The world really should not have any problem with any of this. They shouldn't have any problem with our message. Well, they're going to have a problem with our message. But they're not going to have any problem understanding who we belong to. We're to be examples of godliness. And that's certainly true. In Scripture, we're told that numerous times over. In Galatians 5, the Lord gives us this very clear picture of the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control is what the Apostle Paul would give to the churches in Galatia. Well, that's a sense in which we're supposed to be all these things. But, you know, too often we're just the opposite. We're the people with the sad, swollen faces that just have no purpose and direction in life and we mope around driving people away instead of coming to Christ. In fact, I often think about that Eeyore spirit, right? You remember the difference between Eeyore on Winnie the Pooh and Christopher Robin? I mean, Eeyore was, oh, bother. Everything's horrible, right? Everything's terrible. And Christopher Robin was the lighthearted kid who came along and, oh, Eeyore, come on. It's not good, not so bad. Those of you who remember that will understand what I'm talking about. Here's an interesting quote, though, that I thought was funny but also sad. Oliver Wendell Holmes reportedly once said that he might have entered the ministry if certain clergymen he knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers. You know, that hit me kind of personally. I thought, okay, well, that says something there. And so there is a sense in which we are to be very positive and we're to help people understand that this life is not all that there is. There's much more to come. But we also know that salt is an irritant. If you've ever been to the ocean, you know that that's a real problem. It gets in your eyes. It can be a problem. Some have said that Jesus was promoting a life of saltiness as if we are to be the ones who sting the world. We're to be the voices there where people uh, are irritated into the kingdom. I was out witnessing with a guy, a friend of mine from seminary many years ago, and uh, we were doing door-to-door evangelism on a Saturday morning, and we were right across the street from a a local university. There were several in in Lynchburg, and uh, we were going across the street, and and it's a pretty busy street, and, and I got to the other side, and I looked behind me, and Alan wasn't there, at least right beside me. He was literally standing in the middle of the street, and cars were going back and forth like this, and he had accosted a guy and was witnessing to him right in the middle of the traffic. And I said to him, Alan, what are you doing? <laughs> after it was over, and he said, well, I wanted to make sure that guy understood that life was very fragile. And in just a wrong turn of the blink of an eye, he could enter into the kingdom of heaven. And therefore, 
He needed to trust Christ as his Savior. And so I've never forgotten that, and I'm sure the man never forgot that either, but he did not give his life to Christ at that moment, but quickly turned away and got out of there, out of Alan's presence. (laughs) But it is true. We're to be people who are truthful about sin, right? We've talked about that many times over the years. We are the voice. We are the mouthpiece of God, and people need to be saved, but not by so much of what we say as much as by what we do. Unfortunately, today, much of what's going on is a social gospel. Again, we've talked about this many times before. Uh, There's less and less about the severity of sin and the reason why people enter into an eternal damnation, but much more about we can all be a part of this if we just give our lives in submission to one another and this social gospel idea and just love, 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 and there's such a wrong understanding of what real love is. And so all of these things have great merit in and of themselves. There's no question about that. But I think in my mind there is one foundation to all of this that Jesus is really importing into our minds, and that is this subject already, and that is we are to be the influencers. Yes, it is true we have all those characteristics of what salt is, but we need to understand what the purpose of real salt is for, and that is to influence Salt has influence, and we are to be influencers of people's lives, to live holy and godly lives. In fact, it's because of the influence of the church. Now think with me for just a second. It's because of the influence of the church, the scriptures teach us, that the world has been preserved. I mean, when God took away the world of humanity in Noah's day, there was only one righteous man, and he was the only one that was saved, and it was because of Noah that God had with. Restrained from his judgment. John MacArthur said, once God's people are removed, it will take only seven years for the world to descend to the very pits of hellishness. Think about that. And we're talking, of course, he's talking about the time of the tribulation. Seven years. You realize that when the church is taken out in the rapture, as he's saying, as the text teaches us, that seven years' time, the world will be totally depraved except except for those few people that are remaining on the earth or those who uh, and get saved during that time. It's because, again, as I said of God's judgment of people like Moses, Moses was the reason that God didn't destroy Israel in the wilderness. You can go back to many places in Scripture through from uh, Deuteronomy and Numbers, Leviticus and Numbers 14, God is really upset with the people of Israel. If you remember the story, many of them, there are many of them, and he's ready to wipe them out. I'm done with these people. And Moses, becoming that type of Christ, steps in in verse 19 and says, Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Just as you also have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. And so the Lord said, I have pardoned them. Listen, according to your word. Moses became that intercessor. He became the salt that was the representative of holiness that God looked through to pardon the people. It's often been because of the people of God others have been spared because they are the influencers. They're the righteous ones. And God has withheld their his judgment. In the home, in fact, we're taught that because of the righteous believing spouse who's married to the unbelieving spouse, that unbeliever is not saved because of the righteousness of the uh, holy spouse, but they are preserved in a sense. They receive the blessings of the one who is the righteous one. And so if you find yourself in that situation uh, in your home, just understand that your spouse is being blessed by God because of your relationship with the Lord. Again, I'm not talking about salvation here. They need to be born again. But they will very well receive the benefits of God because of your righteousness, because you are acting as the influence in that home. And so the point here is is that Jesus is referring to us as salt because, if you haven't gotten it by now, we are the influencers for him. We are the influencers and to be the influencers. And, but let's make a distinction here because Jesus makes the distinction. In this particular example, he's not to, so much talking about words. He's talking more about by our actions. For example, salt keeps things from being corrupted, as we said. 
It's a physical thing that works on the inside. Now, again, I love salt, and so I have a salt shaker on my desk, and every now and then I'll just take some salt. I'm just kidding. I don't do that. Okay, I, I don't do that. I'm just teasing you. But I do like to sprinkle it on my food. Now, why do I do that? So my voice is better? So I can talk better? No, I don't do it for that reason, but because internally it gives me a warm fuzzy, right? I feel better about my food when I have some flavor to it. It's an internal thing. And so we are to be like salt, working to make life more pure from an inward way, internally, so people are not righteous on the outside but that they're living righteous lives from the inside. And so we begin to deal with the heart. And we do that in our actions, number one, by the way we live. So that the world can see how we live and how we work. We are to be the examples of what it means to be godly in our work environments, to be uh, the influencers there in the way that we think, because in the way we think will be proven by the fruits that we have. But it all begins internally. And then that internal righteousness will produce and filter through the rest of our lives. I was thinking as I was going through this of some of the things here in our community of people who have exemplified this kind of life in the public. UVA Sports has grown tremendously in its Christian influence. If you know the name Tony Bennett, which if you're living in Charlottesville, you should know that name. If you don't, you should write it down. I'm not talking about the singer. I'm talking about the coach of the men's basketball team. Tony is first a man of God, and that's been well testified to by many people who know him well. But that filters into his players. If you've ever heard him talk about his five pillars that he got from his dad, who's a believer, he teaches those principles of godliness to his players, not necessarily players who are born again, but he wants to influence these young men. In fact, Sports Spectrum magazine back in 2014 wrote this about Tony, actually quoted Tony in saying this, I have great things in my life, my love for my wife, my love for my family, my love for coaching, my love for basketball. Those are wonderful things, but when you line them up in comparison to Christ and the relationship you have with him, with what he's done for you and with what he's given you, they don't compare. That's the greatest truth that I know. And I tell you, that has just filtered down in a tremendous way. In fact, Debbie and I were, my wife Debbie and I were in a, um, in a FCA, a Fellowship of Christian Athletes meeting breakfast some years ago, and Tony was one of the people there in the One of the other coaches talked about how he had given his life to Christ and started following Christ because of Tony's example. I mean, it's just a beautiful truth here. And then there's Joanna Harden, who's the women's softball coach, and then uh, the women's rowing coach, and then there are many others as well. And we're just hearing more and more stories like this coming from people who are being the salt. They're being the influencers in the environment that God has called them to be in. Now, you may say, well, I'm not a coach. I don't have that kind of... Uh, avenue to share. But remember what we read earlier from Elihu Barit, that we are all influencers in our own right. You remember who, have you ever heard or remember who uh, led Billy Graham to the Lord? The Sunday school teacher. A Sunday school teacher. You say, really? Yeah. It was a Sunday school teacher. Now, Billy Graham was one of the greatest servants of the Lord, regardless of what you think of him. We're not going to talk about all that. But He was a servant of the Lord that God used greatly. Let me ask you this. Have you heard of a lady's name by the name of Helen Ewing? I had never heard of Helen Ewing. Saved as a young girl in Scotland. Gave her life completely to the Lordship of Christ. When she died at the age of 22, it is said that all Scotland wept. She had expected to serve God as a missionary in Europe and had become fluent in the Russian language, but... She was not able to fulfill that dream. She had no obvious gifts, such as speaking or writing, and she'd never traveled far from home. Yet by the time she died, at 22, she had won hundreds of people to Jesus Christ. Countless missionaries mourned her death because they knew that a great channel of their spiritual strength was gone. She had risen every morning, get this now, at five in order to study God's word and to pray. Her diary revealed that she regularly prayed for over 300 missionaries by name. Everywhere she went, the atmosphere was changed. If someone was willing, was telling a dirty story, he would stop if he saw her coming. 
If people were complaining, they would become ashamed of it in her presence. An acquaintance reported that while she was at Glasgow University, she left the fragrance of Christ wherever she went. In everything she said and did, she was God's salt. What a beautiful testimony. And that's the message of the Lord. That's simply what he's saying to us here. Salty people are God's people who preserve righteousness. They are proclaimers of righteousness who influence others with their lives because they are founded upon the belief in who Jesus Christ is. And they absolutely live it. Now notice, the Lord doesn't stop there. We already acknowledged this back in the beginning here in verse 14. Go back with me there for a second. The Lord says, you are also the light of the world. The light's a little different from salt. Quite different, in fact. Light emanates outward or outwardly, shining into the darkness. That's a physical effect of light, but light also has internal characteristics about it as well. It brings hope. It brings understanding, or at least it symbolizes these things. The truth, <clears throat> excuse me, non-physical subjects, purity, cleanliness. Do you know what one of the greatest lies of Satan is? And he has many of them because he's the father of lies. I think this is probably the greatest lie. is to convince the world that everything will get better if we try hard enough. That's one of the biggest lies Satan has convinced people of. And the world buys it. I was reading an article in Forbes magazine, and this was back in 2017, or written back in 2017, and it's titled, Why the World is Getting Better and Why Hardly Anyone Knows It by a man named Steve Denning. And he writes this simply, When a recent survey asked all things considered, do you think the world is getting better or worse? The results were predictably bleak. In Sweden, only 10% thought things are getting better. And in the U.S., it was only 6%. Hardly anyone thinks the world's getting better, he says, and yet the facts show otherwise. I'm like, really? In a powerful study entitled The Short History of Global Living Conditions and Why It Matters That We Know It by Max Rosser, an economist at the University of Oxford and founder of Our World in Data, we learned that on virtually all of the key dimensions of human material well-being, poverty, literacy, health, freedom, and education, the world is an extraordinarily better place than it was just a couple centuries ago. Now, that may be very, very true, and I think we would all have to agree that, yes, it certainly is true in some areas of life. I mean, it is incredible what our technology has done, isn't it? I mean, it's just absolutely incredible. Better homes, better transportation, better medical attention. I, for one, love that. I'm glad that we have all of that. But here's the one thing we've never improved upon, and that is the morality of man. As much as things have improved, man's morality is sinking deeper and deeper and deeper into demonic work. I mean, the advances in science have caused man to live longer, right? To predict health better, to live healthier, but nothing man has accomplished has created man to be more moral. I mean, you think about it. All of the advances that we have, you don't hear any talk about how to fix the morality of the heart. And why is that? Well, we know the answer. It's because man, according to Scripture, is full of darkness. And he loves the darkness. Jeremiah 17:9. the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Desperately sick. In fact, Jeremiah would follow that up by saying, who can understand the heart? On the, one, on the one hand, the heart is doing extremely well, and the next second it's in deep darkness. It can switch like the blowing of the wind. Paul would say to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's the real plight of the world. And we learned all that in Revelation. There's going to come a time where the Antichrist is going to completely or almost completely take over the world in utter darkness. And I'm talking spiritual darkness. And then there are going to be literal things physically that are going to happen. The heart, beloved, seeks darkness. It may seek all of the great things of life on an outward sense, but when it comes to the moral fabric of the heart, it loves the darkness and lavishes the darkness. Job said in 5.7, man is born for trouble. That doesn't mean that it's going to come. That means he looks for it. In chapter 14, Job says, man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Because listen, it's not rocket science. Without God, there's only one thing left. 
That's darkness. That is moral decay. Unless God's people, listen, unless you and I see ourselves as light in the world, this world will continue to get darker and darker. It's going to happen anyway. Let's don't be confused. The Lord's going to come back. We already know the story. But while we're here, Jesus is saying, you are the light of the world. You're the only light the world has. It's no accident. You've heard me say this many times before, and this is a reminder to myself. It's no accident that we are who we are. It's no accident we are. We live where we live, where we work where we work, who we're married to, who our brothers and sisters are, who our aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, who our dog is. It's no accident. It's purposeful on God's part because he has strategically called us as his people to be a light in that environment. We are to be salt, which is the inward purifying effect of influence and light that emanates, radiates verbally many ways and many times about who God is, which is exactly what Jesus is teaching here. Again, man can talk about how much better he's getting, but the heart is only getting worse unless it has a true relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And because Jesus illuminates the heart with truth and righteousness, we again are to be visible to the world. Let's go back to our chapter here, Matthew 5. You are the light of the world, verse 14. But he qualifies this to help us to understand a city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden. He's saying to them, listen, this is an obvious fact. There's not one city in the world, and you know this, disciples, that can be hidden at night because there are lights there. It's impossible to do that. And then he goes on to give another illustration. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And he gives light to all who are in the house. So let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Listen, think of it like this. There are no hidden Christians. There are no hidden Christians. Not in God's kingdom. There's no such thing in God's vocabulary as a hidden Christian. They're open. We have been given the Spirit of God, who is the light of the world, and we are the light of man's heart, and we are to be the reflectors of God's light. John 1 9, there was the true light, that's Jesus which coming into the world enlightens every man. And every man will either turn to God or he'll run from God. And that's true. We, however, as the true believers, are responsible to God. We're first accountable to God to share the light of truth with everyone we come in contact with in some way. And Jesus breaks this down into two components. We begin by our internal life by being the salt. And then we expose who we are by the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart that come out, according to Scripture, to show people that we belong to God. We have to do what the Lord is saying to us. And if you study the text carefully enough, you'll see through these verses here, when Jesus is using specific words, you are, he's very specifically giving a commandment here. This is not an optional thing as much as being a Christian itself and the Beatitudes were optional. These are my people. If you're going to be my people, this is who you are. You are an influencer. And you are to be an influencer. Now, I know what you're thinking, because this is what I was thinking. Okay, I don't do a very good job at this. So what does this mean, and what happens to God's people when they're not salt and light? What's the, what's the problem here? Let's go back to verse 13. If the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now, before you get fearful that I'm going to say you've lost your salvation, which you'll know that I would never say that because that's not a true biblical teaching. Here's the point. Jesus is teaching them again something that they would have understood in their context. The salt that they had in Palestine came basically from the Mediterranean Sea, but there were times when that salt would become um, infected with something, some organic material or something that would cause it to become useless. 
And so they knew that they couldn't just throw it out. It was not good to eat because it would actually even have a bad taste in it. But they knew that if they put it on something, their plants, and just threw it out on whatever, that it would kill whatever it got on, it came in contact with. And so they would throw it out onto the road. And that's what the roads became basically paved with, were things like that, where there was no grass, people were already traveling anyway, and it would be trampled underfoot. And that's what Jesus is meaning when he says that. The only thing that it's basically good for is to become a path in the road. It really has no ability to do anything else. It's lost its usefulness. So Jesus is saying, sometimes we can lose our effectiveness. We've got to be careful that we don't ever lose our effectiveness. And the way that we do that, that being losing our effectiveness, effectiveness is we can compromise the truth. We talked a lot about that last time. We can become compromisers, and we do that typically by giving in to our fleshly lusts through fear or some other means. Paul would describe that in Galatians 5, what it means to walk in the flesh or the deeds of the flesh. And he says there is immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and he adds the tagline and things like this because it's not exhaustive. Now, just to help us with our thought here, he's talking about sexual impropriety. That's what he's talking about with immorality, adultery, premarital sex, homosexuality, bestiality, in, bestiality, incest, prostitution, basically anything that's an illicit form of sexual deviance. That's what he's talking about with the immorality. Now, sensuality is basically the lack of restraint of our sexual prowess and our desire to fulfill our sexual needs outside of a God-ordained God context. Sorcery should be pretty obvious. That's the idea. And this is very interesting. The word sorcery here is a word pharmakia, which sounds familiar, right? That's where we get pharmacy. It's the word for drugs. And so sorcery was often uh, grown or the idea of worshiping some idol was grown through the use of taking in drugs. And so God says any forms of whatever that alters the mind that causes you to serve pagan gods is out of the question. I'm not going to go through all of those, but simply what he's saying is that if we're involved in these kinds of things that are of the flesh, we're not going to be able to help others grow in Christ. We're just not going to be able to do that. Now, God is not arguing for us to be perfect because his son is perfect and we find our perfection in the face of God through Jesus Christ. We are not perfect in and of ourselves, but we are to make sure that we don't disqualify ourselves. We have a responsibility here to remain what God has called us to be. In fact, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 9, I discipline my body. Listen to this. I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And I fear, unfortunately, probably all of us in this room could say, yeah, we have bordered very heavily on the disqualification of being Christians in the face of the world. They look at our lives, they hear our words, they see our actions, and they say we are anything but the preservating, a preserving influence in the world for godliness. And then, as much as salt can become useless, light can also become useless. I mean, how many times have you gotten up in the night and stubbed your toe because the light was there, but you refused to turn it on to give you light, and so it wasn't able to do its effective work, right? You understand the point? Light has a purpose, and that is to illuminate. And that's why Jesus says in verse 14, what we've already mentioned, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And so he takes the disciples' faces almost literally and turns them to the city on the hill and then has them examine their own hearts by saying, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it on a basket, uh, under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. The very purpose of light is to help people to see. The reason God illuminates our hearts with the Holy Spirit is not just to help us see. Because listen, if we've had the Holy Spirit given to us, we see, right? 
I mean, we see when the Spirit of God changes us. But it goes beyond that. We are to be the illuminators of the light of Christ into the world so that they're able to see Christ as we see him. And so he says in verse 16, Let your light therefore shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Notice this phrase here, in such a way. It means with strategy, purposefulness. There's a deliberation behind the way we live. In other words, we have a plan. We don't just go out willy-nilly and just say, oh, God, use me. No, we put on the full armor of God every moment and we say, Lord, protect my mind and my heart. We pay attention to how we come across, right? I mean, each of us in this room, even as Christians, could use words that would be very hurtful to one another. We could give actions and attitudes that would be very hurtful to one another, but we don't do that because we have a plan, we pay attention, we prepare our minds because we want to be lights that shine in the world because how else will others see God? We are the vehicles. This concept of good works that Jesus talks about, he's not talking about the quality of our lives here as we would think, not so much actions. He's talking about the attractiveness of our lives. I mean, there have been many people that are very talented, talking about leadership, many, many, many people that are very talented in leadership. Good grief. Let's talk about the extreme here for a second. Adolf Adolf Hitler. He was a phenomenal leader, but not a good one in the sense of righteousness. But boy, talking about people following him. Unbelievable. Nations of people following that guy. But he was right from the pit of hell himself, itself. And so we're talking, when Jesus is talking about good works, it's the attractiveness of our lives. In other words, we want people to be attracted to our spiritual lives. And we have a responsibility to that. And again, not because of what we do, but because of how we are. About how we are in this life. And so Jesus said the purpose of the hill and the salt and the light, excuse me, the light and the salt is to glorify God so others will see God and want to glorify Him too. And what we want, beloved, is for people to look at our lives and go, Wow! Get a load of that person! They're unbelievable! Look at how they walk with the Lord. I mean, God just oozes out of every crevice of their body. It's just amazing who He is. You see how it points to God? But I fear too often our flesh is so wrapped up in our flesh and our own desires that we're just the opposite. I often ask myself the question, why don't people attend church more regularly? I mean, I was just walking into Sam's the other night, and Debbie and I were talking about Jesus and what it's going to be like when we first see him. And, man, I was just getting more and more excited and wondering why people don't have that same kind of excitement. I'm not the model. I'm not saying that. I'm just simply saying what's happening in my heart. I was just so encouraged about the moment that we first lay eyes on Jesus and know that that's really Him. And what a joy and a blessing that's going to be. And so it caused me to ask the question, why don't people want that? Well, first of all, we know people love darkness. But secondly, I saw this. And I think this relates well to this subject of salt and light. A 2018 article, this was by CNN. In answer to the question, 57%, it was specifically about women, who don't go to church say it's because they don't feel welcome. And we've heard that before. We've heard that you may have felt that before, wherever you've been. But how does it relate? Well, I think it relates because, beloved, for people to feel welcome, they have to know that there's something attracting about them. Right? Now, typically we'd say, oh, it's because somebody said hi to me and was kind. Well, why are we being kind? Why are we being welcoming? It's because we have the light of Christ in us, right? It's because we understand we have the salt of God in us to be influencers. The young lady who came a couple weeks ago, and Roylene made friends with her, Jeray, we got a card from her this week, and it was just really neat. Jeray was the lady who was here and gave us the update on the Thrive Ministry. And she just so loved the church. I think I shared this with you, at least some of our members. And uh, she wrote in her little card there just what a, what a, a, 
a blessing it was to be a part of the church. And she specifically mentioned how kind everybody was. Now you think that's not such a big deal. But yes, it is. It's huge. It's huge because our motivation is not just so people will come to the church, but because we just simply love Jesus. And we want people to know Jesus. Now she does. She's a believer. But she felt all of that. And that was just a recent situation. And hopefully you're here today, not because somebody or you're driving down the road and said, I've examined every church in Charlottesville and there's absolutely none around within 200 miles. I guess I could just go to Laurel Hill. Now, hopefully that wasn't the case. I mean, hopefully you're here because you kind of really want to be here. I mean, I hope that's, that's what it is. And you want to be here because of Jesus. Because his people reflect Jesus. That's what we want. Listen. Bottom line is, we're influencers for God. Let's ask ourselves the questions. How are we doing? How are we doing with that? And then when we ask how are we doing, we need to ask, what's, what are the adjustments that need to be made? What are the changes? You hear Jesus saying that to the people? Here's my list of people, Beatitudes. My people are salt and light. You kind of hear him saying, how are you doing? Is that you? Are you, are, are you what I'm talking about? What needs to be celebrated? What needs to be changed? What are we doing well? What are we not doing well? I think the best question for ourselves as we close with this is that when people describe you, when people describe you, not me, not your neighbor, not anybody beside you, when people describe you in this life, what is the description? Well, that'll make you think for a minute, won't it? When people... Describe you, what is the description? Salt for Christ? Light of the world? Wouldn't that be awesome? Isn't that what we'd want to hear him say? Certainly was I, what, certainly is what I'd want to hear him say. What a great epitaph it would be on our tombstone. Influencer for Christ. Can't think of anything greater said. Influencer for Christ. Think about those thoughts. Things run through my mind. And I think these are the things that Jesus wants us to understand. We are to be difference makers. How are we doing? All right, let's pray together. Father, as we started out this message in our prayer, we were very much reminded of seeing ourselves seated on the mountainside with you. And now we've come through several messages of yours as you displayed them in the Beatitudes. And we have a very clear understanding now of what we are to look like in our hearts. And now we're hearing you say to us, I'm going to send you out, but these are the things that I want you to pay attention to. Lord, as we examine our hearts, which is what I believe you have for us to do at moments like this, not only are we here to glorify you, that's ultimately our purpose, but we really want to glorify you through our hearts. And we have to examine our hearts. We have to look deeply into ourselves to really see what's going on in there so that what comes out to the public world is a reflection of you. And so I would be the first to ask you, Lord, to forgive us as a church, as individuals. Forgive me for ways that I've not been that example this week. And Lord, I pray that you never stop the convicting work of your spirit when we have moments that we need to be adjusted. I do pray that you would help us to see and celebrate the times that we're doing well and not live with that Eeyore spirit. I think we should live with the joy of life, the contentment of life, just as you've shared with us. But Lord, there are many times where we need to examine ourselves and, and to go with full force and lots of gusto into the world saying, we have the answer. We have the, the reflection of the glory of God written all over us. And so we just want to share it with whomever we come in contact with. And so Lord, do these things, we pray. Help us to be the hearers of your word and, and then the doers that you may be well pleased with us. So Lord, Lord, speak to each of our hearts in its own way, in our own context as we go forth into the week. 
Give us those opportunities to be these things. And Lord, help us to be examples of righteousness. And Lord, as always, I pray that whatever you're doing in the heart of an individual today, that you'll do it to the fullest and that you'll give us the joy of being a part of changed lives. We lift up those that are hurting right now for whatever reason, and there are those certainly within our body, a sense of loss and a sense of uncertainty. And Lord, we lift up those dear brothers and sisters. And we give all of this to you now and surrender our hearts fresh and new, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.